Hi, my name is Skipper Chong Warson. I'm a design director in San Francisco. Welcome to How This Works. This is a show where I invite people on to talk about subjects they know incredibly well. And today, Dr. Peter Chin Hong is with me from the University of California at San Francisco. He and I are going to talk about being an infectious disease expert and professor at UCSF. Specifically, we're going to talk about the novel coronavirus and COVID-19, both topics about which he knows an incredible amount. We'll also talk about the current state of the virus, the vaccine candidates, and how holiday travel might work as well as other get-togethers. Dr. Peter Chin Hong, thanks for making time. My pleasure, Skippers. Thanks for having me on. So let's start with sort of a general opening of our show. Um, first, I'd love to know, you know, how should I refer to you? Um, you know, some of my best friends call me by all three of my names, even my wife. Um, may I call you Dr. Chin Hong or something else? You can call me Peter, but my students call me PCH, like Pacific Coast Highway. Nice. Because those are the initials of my name. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I'll go, I'll go and go with Peter. So let's start with you. Would you tell me a little bit about yourself? Uh, who are you? Sure. So right now, I'll start with where I'm at right now. I'm an infectious disease uh, clinician and professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. But it took me a while to get to this spot because I was born in the Caribbean in Trinidad and Tobago, the most southern island in the Caribbean chain. And it's right off the coast of Venezuela. I uh, looked at a brochure in high school from a friend and Brown University looked really cool. It had all these black and white pictures. So I took a leap of faith, went to Providence, Rhode Island, uh, was there for undergrad and medical school. Then I visited that same friend who moved to San Francisco to work for Oracle, lived in the pre-hipster mission <laughs> on Valencia Street, ate a burrito every day and okay. fell in love with San Francisco. <laughs> so I decided to come here. Oh, that's awesome. So as part of our introduction, I usually ask guests, um, what's something about you that many people might not guess, uh, something you feel comfortable sharing? I think when people see me, they see me as uh, primarily Asian, but mm -hmm. actually com coming from the Caribbean, you know, the Caribbean has such a clashing of cultures and a mixing of uh, race, ethnicities and backgrounds. And I, I think people may not know, but I'm 12.5% Indian and 12.5% Scottish. And I, I love that. You know, it just makes me connected to so many different people uh, wherever I meet uh, folks and encounter them. Thanks for sharing that. I really appreciate that you brought that up. Indian, Scottish, Asian, we all have component parts, so much more than what might be signaled from our physical appearance. That's a great reminder. Thanks. So let's get into our main topic today. Peter, what are we talking about? You know, what is the thing that we're talking about uh, in which you are very well versed? Well, we're talking about COVID. And when I think about COVID, I'm not just think about, or I don't just think about the biology of COVID and the medicine of COVID. I think about the social implications and the way it's upended all of our lives. We put our lives on pause, you know, for all these months, uh, for a year, it'll be more than a year by the time we get back to some semblance of normal. And I think yeah. that is really um, something that none of us in our wildest dreams would have thought would take that long or take so much out of us. Yeah, I agree. I, I think I look back to when this started, at least here in California, where I was becoming more aware of it in 
February and in March. Um, now we're recording in December. I did not think that we would be this long into this situation. And I know, and I think, you know, back in spring and even in summer, we always were looking forward to something in the future when we thought things might have burnt out. And I think in those days we were saying at least for Thanksgiving or Christmas, we'll be able to see our family and, and loved ones. And now it's not looking like that's going to be possible. Yeah. I'd like to ask you one more background question. How did you become first interested in medicine? You know, what was your inspiration? So I think growing up in the Caribbean, I was struck by the fact that specifically infectious diseases, actually, even from a small kid, mm -hmm. I'd run around and um, see a lot of folks uh, in the village that I grew up in, a lot of transmissible infections. And mm -hmm. it was inherently an optimistic feel because then, you know, sure, some people didn't have access to medicines, but the ones that did they got cured. So being an optimistic person, it was something that uh, drew me into the field originally. I always was worried that I had hookworm or parasites, for example, some sort of unnatural fears for a seven-year-old. But then the story got deeper during high school in Trinidad when one of my best friends, his dad, I, I later on found out, had HIV and died of AIDS. So I think that was really part of my sort of pre-medical school development and motivation to join a force that can help not just people I encountered, but on a broader scale, populations. And um, so that, you know, maybe in another era, another reincarnation of that story, I would have been able to help my friend's dad. I see. Peter, I'm sorry for your friend's loss, their dad. Normally, we dig into a bit more about how someone has come to know their subject matter, but I think given what's happening in the country, and in the world for that matter, we really should get into the nitty-gritty of our topic. So in the news, week over week, we see the number of cases and the number of deaths increasing. What's happening? Peter, can you break it down from your point of view? Well, I'll break it down into two main issues and uh, maybe two areas in which I think we've not done such a great job in the United States with, and that is, you know, one voice alignment of the whole country to one purpose, mm -hmm. uh, which hasn't been the case with COVID. We've had 50 different countries with 50 different practices. Yeah. Uh, because what had happened is that the authority over the control of the pandemic was relegated to the state. So that meant that you know, the heart wasn't beating in synchrony. We were like all these different muscles twitching. So that's one issue. Sure. And the second issue, I think, just broadly speaking, is, you know, we didn't really have much alignment of science with politics. Mm. It was very divisive. And whenever there is division, people exploit those fractures or use those fractures as an excuse not to do one thing or the other. And to me, being in medicine, having that science divorced from this pandemic was was really heartbreaking. And I think those two things were probably the singular things that led to our demise. I agree. Those are excellent points. Um, in the last few weeks in California, stay-at-home orders have been issued because hospitals are filling up and there are fewer ICU beds, intensive care unit beds are available. Um, in some counties, it's a preemptive strike. Um, what's the current situation as you're aware of it? So the current situation is very bleak, and it's not just the absolute numbers, Skipper. It's the rate of increase of cases okay. and the rate of decrease of availability in hospitals. So the, the tempo and the speed is really what's breathtaking to me 
apart from just the numbers that we focus on in the newspapers or on radio on TV. So just to give you an example, the Central Valley, which I know well because uh, we have a UCSF campus in Fresno and, okay. and I, I speak to my colleagues there all the time. Just, you know, a few weeks ago, there were, you know, 25% or more ICU bed capacity than last week. They were around 10% and now they're at 0% or close to that. So that rate of decrease of ICU bed availability is really uh, unprecedented uh, in a non-pandemic year. So again, it speaks to where we are. In the Bay Area, we're not doing too bad. Currently, we're about 20% ICU bed capacity. In in SoCal, they're doing uh, substantially worse, uh, below 10%. So the fact that we have to think about ICU beds as our metric is itself frightening when in a good day, we'd be thinking just about cases or test positivity rates, some of the traditional metrics we use. But, you know, we don't have much more to think about beyond ICU bed capacity other than deaths. And that to me is very frightening. There aren't many, there's not many, there, excuse me, um, there's not much gray area to your point. Yes, there isn't. And, you know, when you think about ICU beds, that's kind of like a metric of last resort, you know? Yeah. And that that is very different. In the first two waves in California, we were mainly focused on reopening or metrics that states or counties use to then reopen. But we're thinking the opposite now, which is, wow, ICU beds? Who'd ever think we'd come to that? Yeah. You talked a little bit about what's happening at the UCSF campus in the Central Valley. What about um, the UCSF campus here? Um, what's happening inside the medical center? You talked about how, I think you said there was 20% capacity for ICU beds. So 80% has been filled and there's only 20% left. Yes. Yeah, so at UCSF here in San Francisco, again, the numbers don't look too bad in terms of ICU, but that's a, in terms of a relative uh, comparison in an absolute number, I think 20% is not anything to celebrate. And, you know, in California, we've always taken the burden of our neighbors. So Mm. when Imperial County was burning up with COVID, we took some of those patients here. When San Quentin was exploding with cases, we also took care of those patients here. So there's nothing to, to stop us from wanting to extend our help to the surrounding areas. And once that happens, that that risk in some, some other area becomes our risk as well. Yeah. So, so much attention has been placed um, recently on the vaccines that are in development. Last week, the UK distributed the vaccine to at-risk people and frontline medical workers. Last Friday, the Food and Drug Administration authorized the vaccine made by Pfizer and BioNTech, which uses synthetic mRNA to prime the immune system. It's currently approved in Canada and several other countries for emergency purposes, What's your assessment? I'm very excited about the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine product uh, because the efficacy exceeded our wildest dreams. So the bar was pretty low from the FDA perspective. They had and would look at favorably uh, vaccines with a 50% efficacy. So a 95% is actually breathtaking, particularly when you compare it to the influenza vaccine or the flu vaccine that we think about, which is only about 40 to 60% effective when, depending on the year you look at. Sure. How does that compare to the MMR vaccine or DTaP in terms of efficacy? So those vaccines are also very good. They are on the in the ninety percent efficacy range. Okay. Um, so it's comparable to the best vaccines that we have. Great. So is this the vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, that UCSF is receiving? 
Yeah, so UCSF will get about a thousand vaccines in the first rollout. Uh, it's probably going to arrive here in the next few hours. And by Wednesday or Thursday, we'll start immunizing the frontline of the frontline workers. Of course, we don't have enough to immunize all healthcare workers uh, even, but every week there'll be uh, vaccines pushed into California. Uh, if you think about the California numbers of healthcare workers, we have about 2.4 million healthcare workers in California. And wow. um, so that's a lot. And uh, if you think that we may only get a frac, you know, a fraction of that to begin with, yeah. um, you're not going to vaccinate everyone. So you have to think about who's most at risk of the healthcare workers. And then that's not even thinking about the nursing home residents next, yeah. uh, which will be the group that we also worry about. Yeah. Are you going to be receiving it at some point? I hope to get it uh, in the next week or two, and it could be my Christmas present, I hope. <laughs> yeah, that would be a great Christmas present. So there are challenges with this vaccine, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, the cold chain temperature, raw materials, two-part dosages. What worries you the most about it? What worries me the most, Skipper, isn't only the structural challenges, like you, like you mentioned, like super cold temperatures, like negative 70 and your fridge is your deep freeze only about negative eight, for example. Okay. Uh, and we can talk about the two dose thing. But what worries me most is the structural issues. We don't have a single pair in the US. So the distribution is actually quite complex. If you think about it, the Department of Defense has its own distribution line. Uh, the company has its own line, which is going to be the first wave to California. Yeah. And the state has its own line. Uh, so different sites. You hear about Walgreens and CVS doing the nursing homes, then you have uh, different states and counties coming in at different levels. And the VA and the vet, vets and Department of Defense are going to get their own line. It, it's all a little bit confusing. And above all, you need to have a information system to really keep track of everyone. Uh, we move a lot in the U.S., even in pandemic times. Sure. And if you get a vaccine in San Francisco and you happen to be in L.A. for the holidays, then some mega information system has to keep track of you and to know whether or not you're there on time. And, and you have to figure out a place to get that vaccine uh, when sure. it's so tightly linked to county at this moment. Yeah, I, I think that all makes sense. Do you think that the initial vaccine orders that have been placed by the U.S. government, do you think that they will help our country to reopen as we're waiting for additional doses starting in Q2 of 2021, along with other players to come into the market? I do believe it's the only way we can get the country to reopen, but it wouldn't be immediate. Uh, it will be a gradual rollout, as, as people have heard. And there will be a lot of in-between time or great time when there'll be some people immunized, some people not. So as people see it, we probably won't be changing protections like mask wearing and social distance in the next few months. But hopefully by summer, we can actually start enjoying or begin glimpsing the life that we aspire to pre-pandemic. Yeah, the life of the past and the life of the future. Yes, for sure. So other vaccines are also in a variety of stages of development. You know, there's stage one through stage three, which is furthest along. Are there other vaccines or other technologies that you're keeping your eye on in terms of COVID-19? First, let's 
finish up the vaccine part. Yes. So the next, you know, first Moderna is going to be set to be FDA approved soon as well on December 17th, their <laughs> meeting. And um, we expect a very similar result in terms of regulatory approval, simply because they're very similar vaccines. Probably the next vaccine will be AstraZeneca, although that's been plagued by uh, a little bit puzzling uh, clinical trial. And I think people are sorting through the data now where it seemed that the half dose worked better than the full dose and it's about 70% effective. But it is a cheaper vaccine. It's easier to store, just refrigeration and would be great around the world. Again, when you think about a pandemic, you can't just concentrate on one area like the US because people move back and forth. And if you want the economy to move on in the world, which affects ultimately US economy, everyone needs to be protected. So hopefully the AstraZeneca will help in that regard. And then the next ones closer would be Mm J&J, which is great because it's just one shot needed, refrigerator also, and then uh, a, a few others in Operation Warp Speed like Novavax, et cetera. In terms of the rest of the world, uh, China has a few that they're working on. Uh, yeah. They have very different technologies. And then people might have heard about Sputnik in Russia, um, which was a little bit controversial in its rollout. But that's also in the play as well. So a bunch of different players uh, from the vaccine end. And we can also talk about some of the developments and other therapeutics as well. Yeah, I'd love to just get a glimpse into, because I think a lot of the chatter right now is around the vaccines and, you know, potentially what the rollout is. And um, there's a lot of opaqueness about when it will be available. Um, But are there other things that you're keeping your eye on, you're listening out for? Yeah. So I think the big move in terms of next big new thing is to move therapeutics from the hospital, from intravenous to the outpatient world, and hopefully with an oral formulation of a medicine that we can all use in addition to the vaccine. Okay. So, and this is when you get already get infected or even maybe to prevent high-risk people from getting infected. So there are a few compounds in oral formulation being developed. One is by Merck. Uh, another that uh, is not an oral drug, but it's an uh, um, inhaled version of a drug. It's called... Uh, interferon uh, interferon okay. product. That's also kind of promising because you can get it like a nebulizer on inhaled version, like you would treat asthma, reactive airways disease or asthma with um, sure. uh, as an antiviral. So that's kind of cool. Uh, and then uh, there's use about or talk about using antibodies like Regeneron or, you know, the Lily product of antibody cocktail or convalescent plasma in the outpatient setting uh, where you'd kind of, prevent people from actually getting sick if you have it, or even one step further, you prevent people from uh, getting sick altogether. So it could be seen as a bridge to vaccination as we wait the next few months in the country for for um, full vaccination of the community. So these are all some things that are happening. And I think there's been a lot of acceleration of science. So we'll see how fast, fast these things take to get to market. Yeah. What is the name of the Merck product? I can't remember what that is. I don't have it in my notes. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Molnupiravir, M-O-L-N-U-P-I-R-A-V-I-R. Okay, great. So I I love that you already talked about this notion of people moving from place to place, even within California. Um, Some people are traveling in and out of states, even though the vaccines will be available soon. We're not through this, right? I read estimates that 50 million people traveled over Thanksgiving 
like 2 million people by air, um, 48 million by car. How should people be thinking about the holidays in general at the end of the year and then beyond in 2021? That's a great question, Skipper. I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but because I'm usually a super optimistic person, but I don't think we should be doing a lot of traveling uh, for this winter holiday, unless you really have to on an individual level, like visit a dying relative, uh, weigh the risks and benefits, but probably not to go to a beach in Cancun um, because you know, of where we are right now in the pandemic and the vaccine, unfortunately, would not change this curve. It's yeah. too early. Yeah. What are your own holiday plans, if any? I'm just going to stay home uh, in the Bay Area, which itself, you know, I've been learning the joys of more and more. I mean, I always loved living here, but I think I've really begin, begun to appreciate it even more and more. Maybe try out some new takeout options from Michelin-starred <laughs> restaurants. Sure. Support some local restaurants some with some great food. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's what we had, we did for Thanksgiving. We um, we just, instead of making stuff, we just supported one of our local restaurants by getting uh, food from them. And we may do that for winter holidays as well. Yeah. So I'd love to rewind to one other question that came up from the time that we initially talked. I wonder if you have any insight on this notion of how long the novel coronavirus has been in the United States. I've read evidence that it's been here since November 2019, um, you know, sometime last year. Do you have any insight on when the novel coronavirus showed up here in the States? I think November 2019 is completely plausible. And even before that, and we were hampered by several factors in terms of getting that exact date. The main you know, obstacle we had was that we didn't have enough diagnostic tests. So we were mm-hmm. focusing on people who went to China, to Wuhan, China, when in retrospect, that was really foolhardy. And it took the scientists from Seattle and at University of Washington to really look at some old samples she had in a flu study to then go back and retrospectively test them for COVID. And lo and behold, a lot of those people who were turning up flu negative had COVID all along. But Again, we have a lot of travel between particularly the West Coast and the Bay Area and China. So it made no sense that in an infection, when you can't tell if somebody has it by looking at them, because you actually transmit more before you get sick, that people didn't have it along before that. And there are probably a lot of people who died who no one really thought about, but they probably died of COVID. I see. So, Peter, is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to get into um, regarding COVID-19 or the novel coronavirus? I mean, I would I would just say that, you know, there's so many things to talk about, Skipper. I don't even know where to begin, but in broad (laughs) brushstrokes, I mean, I would say what a journey it's been. It's really exposed so much of our fractured healthcare system, um, not only in how people access healthcare. Um, how they interface with uh, clinicians. And we've had to reinvent that with with telehealth uh, more and more. But it also, you know, exposed some of the vulnerabilities in certain segments of our populations, which we already knew were there. But when people are dying in such high numbers, it makes it even more dramatic. And I think for me personally, that was really striking in the pandemic, not only to black and brown communities, um, you know, Latinx, uh, African-American, but mm-hmm. also within Asian populations, you know, Filipino-Americans and, and other folks, other essential workers. 
And that to me was very heartbreaking. And for much of the pandemic, I've had to be an advocate and an activist when I didn't really think I would have to assume this role any point in my career around yeah. tear gas, around, you know, San Quentin, uh, mm. you know, prison health, around, you know, getting enough PPE for uh, healthcare workers and doing rallies in the community. So again, at the end of the day, it also illustrates for me the resilience of people and the kindness of people and how people really get together, particularly when we were all in the dark about what this was all about and and how we even get it. it was like the early days of HIV. I wasn't around for that point, but uh, certainly from what I learned from my colleagues, uh, people were very frightened. Yeah, And of course, as we learned more and more, we adjusted to suit, which makes it very difficult in this period because I think we know enough science. People in the community know how to protect themselves. It's just really will and can we have that willpower to do so do we have the resilience do we have the the strength to do it after being so fatigued after all these months and um that is something that i'm hoping we can all do yeah i hope so too i read um i saw a headline before we started recording that the death count in the united states has surpassed 300,000 and to your earlier point about the acceleration i think it was only a month or so ago um, that we were at, the, the, the count was estimated at 250,000. So the fact that we've gone so quickly from 250,000, which is a tragedy, um, to now 300,000, it's much, much larger. Definitely. And one other chilling statistic uh, I saw or comparison I, I saw recently was that every day now in the United States, more people are dying of COVID than died in the, you know, the 9-11 events. So that's to tell you uh, how much of a problem it is. And I guess that brings up another point, which is, you know, people get numbed by numbers and statistics. And sure. when you walk around on in the Bay Area or in California, it, it really belies what's going on behind the hospital walls. So like in my world, you know, seeing people on vents and having to worry about determining what to do if we get an onslaught and we don't have enough beds for the people that we're seeing, particularly intensive care unit. It, it's really a dissonance or a, a contrast between the, the peace and the quietness that's outside. Because this, you know, in essence, is invisible when you go and go to Safeway, you go to, you know, Whole Foods or whatever, sure. and you just see a bunch of people wearing masks. But behind the scenes, you it's hard to really connect those two. And, and when public health officials say we need to do this, it's sometimes seen like overkill or being too cautious. But then yeah. on the other side, you know, that's not the story. Yeah, I agree. Dr. Chin Hong, we could talk more about our subject matter at hand, um, but we're nearing the end of our time. I'd like to get into a couple of closing questions that I ask all the guests that come on the show. What's one of the most important lessons that you've learned so far in your work or in your life? The first lesson that I think about when you ask that question isn't some medical fact or some biological insight okay. that I've gotten. It's actually the fact that, you know, what one thing that's really struck me during the pandemic is all the hate speech and hate crimes uh, that we've had certain, towards certain populations. Yeah. Uh, specifically one that I'm, that's close to me, obviously, is, which is uh, in the Asian American population. So, sure. you know, when you have political leaders using words like China virus and 
Kung flu, it, yeah. it really is not just sending a bad message, but it actually has implications for health. Yeah. So that was like one of the striking things for me in the pandemic. And the way we dealt with that was really by going on Chinese and Asian American media and just blitzing the the population the, with, with science so that they can really respond when people uh, said certain things to, to folks and to have folks be an upstander. So that's one lesson. The second lesson, which was really, again, highlighted by COVID was the fact that, you know, racism is a public health threat. And when mm-hmm. we had the George Floyd protests, mm-hmm. one of the points that I was asked to comment on over and over again was whether or not it was safe to go out and protest. Mm. So when you think of the framework that racism and anti-Black sentiments are public health issue because they they result in deaths and illness and and morbidity, then the response to that public health threat is to protest and to protest safely. Uh, Then you understand why it's important to have your voices heard. So I think that was another lesson that got re-emphasized to me during COVID. So again, the the lessons from COVID were not just the biology and the medicine and the healthcare. Yeah. The biggest lessons to me was the the societal lessons. And even in in the face of a lot of kindness, there was also darkness as well. Yeah. So Dr. Chin Hong, where can people find out more about you if they want to um, follow your work or um, the things that you do? Well, I think the the best way to f- follow me is to go on Twitter. Um, I, I'm at, at PCH underscore SF, PCH like Pacific Coast Highway. Sure. And, um, you know, send me a message. And, um, you know, I'm depending on the surge, I may not have as much time to tweet. But early in the pandemic, that's another thing that was really striking, too, is that, uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of guidance because the CDC was very sidelined. So we had to like learn from ourselves. So a lot of healthcare professionals took to Twitter to share good practices and science. And we, we learned from ourselves. And um, so Twitter was really important for all of us during uh, the pandemic. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of, even in my own household, there was, um, I, I don't remember his name, but I'll drop it into the show notes. There was a a registered nurse who talked about the notion of um, sanitizing groceries and the idea of like, you know, making sure surfaces were clean and really talking about these practices through the lens of being a healthcare worker. Um, and I found that remarkably helpful um, in terms of the framework that I set up in my own house, in terms of when groceries came in, when we did takeout, when we did things like this, to make sure that the objects that came into our house were as clean as they could be. Yeah, that's great. And Twitter also gave me community as well, because again, in the isolation and loneliness of COVID, where we had to socially distance or physically distance ourselves from each other, um, that was the way in which we reached out, apart from Zoom, of course. That's great. It's nice to hear a story about social media, where it's not a distraction, but it's actually a help. So thank you for that. And Peter, PCH, thank you for making time and space to talk to me today. I love what you're doing and getting it the word out there to lots of folks, uh, not only in COVID, but in all the other topics that you're exploring. I, and uh, I find it very admirable. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for your time today. And thank you for your work and your service generally. And thank you for listening to How This Works. Please subscribe and leave us a review in your favorite podcast app. Also, if you could... 
Tell just one other person about the show and why they should listen to it. You can find How This Works online at howthisworks.show. That's three words, no dashes. Again, that's howthisworks.show. We're also active on social media. I hope that you got as much out of my chat with Dr. Chin Hong as we had in making it. And we'll talk again soon. You know, so much of our day is always, um, I feel like these days, so much of our day is consumed with solving technology problems that sometimes I wonder what we did before all of these different products in our life. Yeah. Ooh, that, that's actually clicked right in. That sounds much better. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. And I see your voice printing. All right. Super. <laughs>